welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host. We are now at our fourth and final episode of the Curious Congenital Conundrum Series Edition 2. You can find the last three episodes, which were 79, 80, and 81, as part of this series. And you can also check out the first edition of these Curious Congenital Conundrum cases um, back in episodes 36, 37, 39, 41, and 43. I'll introduce our co-host today, Dr. Gunjan Mopankar. Gunjan completed her medical school training at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. She completed her residency in pediatrics at the University of Ottawa and is about to start her fellowship in pediatric ID at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I am happy to welcome back Dr. Justin Penner, who you'll remember from some prior episodes. He really is the force behind these Curious Congenital Conundrum series, both this one and the prior one. Justin currently works as a pediatric infectious diseases consultant at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa, Canada, as well as doing some additional work in Europe and the UK, uh, where he completed his infectious disease and immunocompromised ID training at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Hi, Sarah. It's so nice to be here again. Thanks for having us. Uh, Well, as everyone's favorite culture podcast, we always start off by asking if you'd be willing to share a little piece of culture, so something that brings you happiness or joy, sort of outside of the medical work setting. What do you guys, what have you guys been doing recently? So, so as uh, I I said on the last episode when I was on last time, I'm quite a big uh, tennis aficionado. So it's, you know, going into the summer, I'm looking forward to Wimbledon and then the US Open. And, you know, I'm always following the the, the tournaments over the summertime and and how things are going. But um, unfortunately, in my old age, my uh, athletic prowess has really declined and my body no longer (laughs) accepts the fact that I like to play sports. So I have picked up a new uh, version that is much more uh, age friendly. So I've started to play pickleball, which uh, I think uh, is something that I can do. I hear until I'm in in my 80s and 90s. So I'm quite <laughs> I'm quite excited about that. Um, so my little piece of culture is that um, I recently actually got back from working in a hospital in Iqaluit, which is actually the same hospital that uh, Justin works at. And uh, Iqaluit is like is about 2,000 kilometers north of Ottawa in Canada's Arctic. So I spent the time there really immersing myself in Canada's uh, Indigenous history and Inuit culture and really uh, had a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, and it, there was these profound moments of reflection, you know, watching the ice melt in the north while there was forest fires happening in, in Ottawa and uh, in northern uh, Quebec. Um, it just served as an important reminder of how interconnected we all are and Really, infectious disease is one of the, you know, fields in medicine where that interconnectedness of humanity is evident in every single consult we see. Um, So happy to be here. And uh, thank you so much for having us both. Oh, what a wonderful intro. (laughs) Um, Well, I will hand it over so that we can jump into the case. The NICU rings with a quick question about a baby whose mom has just broken out into a rash. The mom in question delivered a baby boy two days ago at 33 plus 3 days gestation via C-section due to gestational hypertension. The pregnancy was only remarkable for high blood pressure, in which the mom was prescribed labetalol. Her serologies for HIV, syphilis, 
Hepatitis B and hepatitis C were negative. This is her second pregnancy. The rash is described as an itchy, erythematous, and blistering rash. Justin, what additional information would you want to gather in order to help the NICU team on their steps moving forward? So this is definitely, you know, not an unheard of question. And and certainly, depending on where you work, this may be a, a question you get quite routinely, um, depending on kind of local epidemiology of, you know, rash and viral illnesses and, and vaccines and which vaccines are given in your local setting. Uh, certainly, this isn't you know, as we all know in ID, quick questions are never quick questions, and quick questions usually come on a Friday afternoon. So, um, a quick question always has lots of uh, uh, questions in return from the ID team. So, one of the things that I've always kind of taken uh, to heart is that you know I never really believe what I'm told over the the other end of the phone, and it's really important for us as the you know the ultimate diagnosticians, as you know we often like to refer to ourselves is to really not miss something when, you know, the other teams are, are, are quite certain of what it is. It's really important that we aren't blinded by that. So the, the first thing that I would do is really importantly make sure that I'm considering the whole differential diagnosis. I mean, certainly I can anticipate that the NICU team is quite worried about chickenpox. But for example, in my setting where uh, chickenpox has been uh, in part of our routine vaccination for uh, 20 plus years. So the first in Canada was in 2000. Um, you know, we don't see chickenpox a lot. So I would really need to ensure that it's not something else. On the contrary, um, where I did my fellowship in the UK, where VZV vaccination is not yet routine, this is something that happens much more routinely. So perhaps, you know, not needing to consider other differential diagnosis as much, but it is, like I said, just really important not to miss something. So, you know, some of the differential diagnosis that I would need to consider first, which would really guide my questions of what I asked them on the phone. So, you know, is this the obvious? Is this varicella? Is this really zoster? Is it HSV? Is this enterovirus? Is this syphilis? I mean, you know, we've seen lots and lots of syphilis these days, and certainly syphilis is the great masquerader and can present like anything, including rash and, and, and febrile illnesses. Is this scabies? Is this just a bacterial skin infection? Or is this really something non-infectious? I think we need to really consider all of those options, um, especially when we're trying to get down to the bottom of what is what to do and what is the safest thing to do. So, you know, one thing that, you know, we're, we're a, a digital world these days. So the one thing that I would ask the NICU team is if it's possible, if the mom has any pictures of the rash. So certainly we don't want her coming into the NICU, especially if this is chickenpox uh, or, you know, something else that's potentially quite highly infectious. So if she could send us some pictures, it would be nice. I mean, it's not the end all be all, but it certainly can help us try to distinguish from certain things that really don't look like chickenpox. Um, the other important questions to ask are, is the mum vaccinated against VZV? As I said, this will really depend on your local setting and when um, uh, chickenpox vaccination was, was implemented. It's also important to know how many doses that she's received, if she has received any, whether it was one dose or two doses. And this is, again, dependent on your setting uh, and when your jurisdiction introduced a second dose of vaccine, because some of um, some women of childbearing age may have only actually received one uh, and that would increase their chances of, of having chickenpox despite a vaccination. Importantly, were there any exposures to VZV? Obviously, that would make our suspicion of VZV much higher. Uh, uh, 
Does the mom have older children? Is she a daycare worker? Was there any outbreaks that she's been around? Did anybody come to the house with a fever or with a rash? You know, all those sort of exposure questions that we love to ask. Again, going back to the differential diagnosis, has she ever had HSV lesions in the past? Is this really just a recurrence of HSV? Is the mom otherwise healthy? Does she have any other conditions that may predispose her to infectious or non-infectious skin pathology? Is she on any immunosuppressing medications or does she have any uh, known immunocompromising conditions that, as we know, can make run-of-the-mill infections look strange uh, and can also predispose you to infections in general? Like I said, it's really important to know her uh, chickenpox status and whether or not that was with a vaccine or whether or not she's quite certain that she had a clinical episode of VZV. And to be honest, that's quite difficult these days um, as the vaccine rollout has been so ubiquitous and that you know a lot of, of chickenpox episodes appear quite atypically and what a lot of people call chickenpox are probably actually not chickenpox. So our clinical reliability of a clinical episode of chickenpox is becoming less and less reliable, unfortunately. Um, some jurisdictions, so for example, some jurisdictions that I work in, all mums as part of their routine uh, screening in pregnancy would have had uh, serology for VZV. So that's something to ask if that's been done. Um, and importantly, from an infectious prevention and control perspective, um, is that we really want to know when mom had her last contact with the NICU, as that will really um, determine what sort of prevention uh, things that we can do to prevent a, a big outbreak that certainly our infectious uh, uh, prevention and control colleagues will not want to have to deal with. Uh, and what is the status of the baby? Is this baby really unwell or is the baby totally fine? And, and similarly, what is the makeup of the NICU? Is it individual rooms? Is it a huge open unit that's separated by curtains? Um, you know, what is the structure and how, do, how is the, the, the flow of the unit? How many babies are there in there? How premature are they? What type of level of care did, and, and what kind of respiratory support? All those things will really help you determine kind of what the next step is and what the risk is. So the NICU fellow is able to provide you uh, with some answers to your questions, Justin. Um, the mom is an otherwise healthy 34-year-old woman taking no medications apart from the labetalol in pregnancy, as well as prenatal vitamins. She's never had HSV lesions of the skin, mouth, or the genitourinary system. She's never been diagnosed with an STI. She has one other child, a three-year-old boy who goes to daycare. The mom remembers being told by her mom, that is her, that is the maternal grandmother, um, that she had a mild case of chickenpox when she was two years old, but she never saw a doctor and the rash cleared up after a couple of days. And overall, the details are a bit unclear. As far as she knows, she's not been vaccinated against chickenpox and she doesn't have any records of her vaccinations. She does know, however, that her GP had previously told her that her rubella antibodies were negative when screened in pregnancy and thus she would have to get a vaccine after she delivered. She last visited the NICU yesterday and her lesions started today on her arms and small new lesions have just cropped up on her torso. She's pumping breast milk, which the baby is taking fully enterally through an oral gastric tube. The NICU unit currently has 12 other infants, all of whom are 30 weeks and above. Two of the babies are on CPAP 
The unit is an open unit comprised of five pods with cots separated by curtains. Parents are able to visit babies at their bedside, provided they do not have any infectious symptoms, and are allowed to enter and exit the unit freely as as long as they remain symptom-free. A daily symptom screen for COVID is conducted before entering. The fellow is able to send you a picture of the skin lesions that the mom had sent electronically to the NICU team. The picture shows fluid-filled papules with surrounding erythema consistent with acute varicella infection. So with all of this information in mind, how would you further advise the NICU team? Yeah, so, you know, this is a tricky situation, especially, you know, as I said, these situations tend to happen at the most um, inopportune times. But it seems like this mom, you know, certainly clinically and by history has uh, a case of acute varicella infection. I think her history of this, you know, query rash varicella as a child may or may not have been varicella. Uh, uh, and as I mentioned before, our clinical acumen in diagnosing varicella clinically is becoming uh, much and much more difficult uh, these days. Uh, and, and she may or may not have had uh, uh, a vaccination, depending on her age and where she lives. So the first thing to do, and I always, this is always my approach, is to make sure that we don't uh, precipitate further harm to the patient or other patients. So the first thing to do uh, and certainly appease our infection prevention and control uh, colleagues uh, to avoid outbreaks is we need to isolate this child or, or certainly cohort the child uh, and ensure that the mum doesn't return to the NICU. What we don't want is the mum to return with this uh, acute varicella infection and, and further expose uh, either her child, other child, children in the NICU or indeed staff for that matter. Um, so typically with varicella, infants are isolated from new patients between days 8 to 21 of exposure. And uh, if they're given immunoglobulin or, or V-Zig, that can be up to 28 days. And this is to encompass both the contagious period, which is about 24 hours before the rash, 24 to 48 hours, uh, until all of the uh, the the rash is, is um, crusted over. Uh, the typical incubation period for varicella is about 10 to 14 days, um, but certainly uh, immediately isolating or cohorting children in the NICU would be the most prudent thing to do. Really, the interventions for neonatal varicella exposure really depend on the timing uh, of the development of the maternal rash, um, and, and that is the biggest risk. So important that we determined in this particular patient that she developed the rash really within 24 hours of, or 24 to 48 hours of giving birth uh, to her child. It's also dependent on the uh, exposure, the degree, uh, and the degree of exposure, the uh, maternal varicella. Uh, clinical history, and indeed, as I mentioned before, her serostatus. Um, but you know, the serostatus is often not available. It often takes a quite a long time to get. Uh, so that can be a tricky part of the evaluation. Uh, and, and certainly the gestational age of the baby, and this baby being uh, premature, uh, but not terribly premature, builds into your, your management plan, certainly. So if practical, you could do a PCR of the mom's lesions uh, to make sure it's VZV. But, you know, in the real world situ- situation, this is really difficult because obviously you don't want the mom to come to the NICU. And the chances of you getting back the PCR in due time is, is pretty low. So the question then becomes, do we give this child any therapy or do we have to give any of the other children that were exposed therapy in the NICU? So 
I think what I'll do is I'll just go over the indications for varicella immunoglobulin um, first. And, and what I've learned uh, working in different centers and in different countries is that it's really important to know what your local guidelines are because there often are slight differences or slight nuanced differences in qualification for who gets which treatment depending on where you work. So I would encourage everyone to look at their local policies. Uh, immunoglobulin is a uh, limited product. It is a blood product. So we do want to certainly use it uh, sparingly and in the right indications. So the AAP, which really quite closely aligns with the Canadian guidance, guidance recommends that VZIG uh, is given to, new, to newborns with significant exposure to varicella if they have any of the following high-risk um, risk factors. So in this particular patient, uh, as we mentioned, the mum developed varicella within 48 hours of giving birth. So this alone would qualify as maternal symptoms within five days before delivery to two days after delivery would be an indication for um, varicella immunoglobulin. As I mentioned before, the degree of prematurity plays a part in this. So if um, the baby is uh, 28 weeks of gestation or older and over a thousand grams or one kilogram, if the mums don't have documented immunization uh, or positive serostatus or a clear history of varicella infection, they should also get uh, varicella immunoglobulin. Now, this is different for babies that are born under 28 weeks or under one kilogram. Uh, so in these sort of situations, it doesn't matter on what mom's maternal immunization or history uh, of exposure to varicella is. And that's simply because we can't really rely on transplacental transport of, of immunoglobulins uh, to the baby at those sort of gestational ages. So we can assume that the baby is unprotected. This closely aligns with uh, other guidance, but as I mentioned, is not uh, exactly the same. So if we look at the uh, UK HSA guidance, the window for prophylaxis for varicella immunoglobulin is a bit larger. So uh, they uh, recommend varicella immunoglobulin from seven days before to seven days after delivery if the mum develops uh, varicella. The other thing to consider is whether or not varicella immunoglobulin is even available, because in certain settings, that is not the case. Um, and when I trained in the UK and during my fellowship, there was a shortage of uh, VZIG. So you also need to consider whether or not uh, the, the, the prudent thing would be to use IV acyclovir in, if VZIG is not available. There are also certain jurisdictions which recommend both uh, the use of VZIG and IVA cyclovir together in certain high-risk uh, situations. And this is the case uh, with UK guidance where if uh, the rash is within uh, four days before delivery to two days after, they recommend both giving VZIG and uh, IVA cyclovir. Now, the next question is when to give it. So we've decided that this baby needs it uh, because of the exposure uh, within 48 hours after delivery. Uh, and so the, the truth of the matter is, is the earlier you give it, the better it will work. The VZIG window, uh, as I mentioned, should be as soon as possible, but certainly within 96 hours. You can consider it after 96 hours, uh, but the, the utility of that is less for preventing infection and more for um, decreasing severity of infection. The window typically extends to about 10 days of uh, of um, uh, before you can give VZIG, um, and and we would certainly still consider it up to 10 days. So I think that's where we would start. So I think 
the the recommendation at this point uh, would be for infection prevention and control and isolation. And then this baby, uh, and certainly other exposed babies, depending on their uh, criteria, as mentioned, would uh, qualify for immunoglobulin treatment. Thanks, Justin. So what instructions would you tell the NICU team about the other babies in the unit? Yeah, so that's a good question. It's not just about the baby in question, but we need to consider the whole unit as a whole. I know I've said this multiple times already, but the last thing that we want is an outbreak. And uh, so we need to to stratify the other babies uh, to determine whether or not they qualify based on the other uh, qualification recommendations that I mentioned. So we do know somewhat some uh, general idea of the construct of the NICU, but it is really important that we go through each patient individually, and we really need to make sure that we know what the serous status of each of those mums are, uh, what the gestational age of those uh, babies are as well. If you can get the varicella immunoglobulin status uh, in the mums in due time, then you can use that as a as a proxy for um, protection for babies. But as I mentioned, that's not always practical. And sometimes the safest thing to do is just to give varicella immunoglobulin. So what I would do is I would sit down, uh, whether in person or on the phone, and we really need to go through each baby individually uh, and determine whether or not each baby needs prophylaxis or not. Uh, what symptoms would you tell the NICU team to look out for if any of the babies were to develop neonatal varicella? And what would you recommend in terms of management if that was to happen? Yeah, well, hopefully it doesn't get to that point. And I think hopefully all of the steps that we take before will try to prevent that. But, you know, we can't always prevent everything. So it is important to make sure that we know what symptoms to look out for. Essentially, in neonates, the symptoms of varicella are similar to an extreme form of varicella in a child. And, you know, if we're lucky enough to live in a place where we have varicella vaccination that's that's universal, we may not have actually seen a lot of varicella period. So seeing an extreme form of varicella might be quite rare to us. The fact is, is that a neonate, uh, in addition to a neonate being premature, in my mind is really an immunocompromised host, and they really don't have a, a developed immune system to be able to handle the, uh, the, the viremia and the infection that is caused by an early onset uh, varicella infection. You do, however, in a, in a mum that has antibodies, uh, you do get the transplacental transfer and protection from that, which again is why it's important to determine what the maternal serostatus is in these sort of circumstances. There is quite a high mortality, uh, unfortunately, with uh, perinatal acquisition of varicella. So some studies quote up to 30%, um, which is, is quite drastic. In addition to that, the morbidity is quite high as well. And really, you can see involvement of any organ. You can see a, a disseminated picture with multi-organ failure, with a sepsis-like picture, with uh, DIC or a pneumonitis. Hopefully, you don't get to that point. Uh, but um, you can also see mild disease. And this can be, you know, just simple skin disease, uh, like a papulovesicular lesion or a blister that crusts over. But as I mentioned, their risk of progression to severe disease in this uh, age group is quite high. Over and above skin and 
organ disease. You can also see involvement of the eye, which can be quite serious, uh, and uh, involvement of the CNS as well. So you can get an encephalitis, a meningitis, a, um, uh, you can get stroke because of the um, vasculitis that is caused by it, by the varicella infection. Uh, and you can also get secondary bacterial infections, both from the skin and in the blood, which can be obviously quite severe as well. The diagnosis itself um, can either be clinical, but usually what we would do is confirm it by PCR. So whether or not that's of the lesion uh, or in the blood uh, or of the CSF. Depending on how quickly you can get the PCR um, uh, in your lab, there are also other options. So that may give you an answer a bit quicker. So um, some labs have the capacity to do a, a direct fluorescent antibody. Um, which may give you the answer a bit quicker, uh, but typically we would rely on PCR given its uh, high specificity. So would the advice on prophylaxis be different if the exposure was from a staff member or another visitor in the NICU? And would you give different advice if the exposure was shingles versus primary varicella infection? Yeah, that's a good question because certainly it's not just the mums uh, or the parents because it really could be anyone that's coming into the NICU and it could also be staff people. The the nice thing is is that 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 helps you in your investigation uh, if it was a staff person is that usually based on you know occupational health practices we typically know what the zero status of healthcare workers are. Um, which is which speeds up the process and allows us to risk stratify a bit quicker. Nevertheless, really the same criteria for immunoprophylaxis would be uh, warranted based on the timing of exposure, the uh, immune status of the mother of each baby, the gestational age of the baby, and the weight, uh, and also to consider comorbidities that um, the the patient uh, has and really how vulnerable. Uh, they would be if they were to develop uh, neonatal varicella. The other thing that you need to consider as well is the uh, immune status of the staff itself uh, and whether or not it's uh, a shingles exposure or a true uh, varicella exposure. Um, and we can talk a little bit about the difference uh, uh, between those uh, as well. But a isolated shingles, because that's really what we see more often these days, as long as it's covered uh, and, the, pa- and the, the person who has the shingles is, uh, is immunocompetent, uh, that shouldn't be spread by aerosols, so it is much lower risk. So again, something else to tease out in the history uh, when you're talking to the staff person or your infection prevention and control uh, team. Last but not least, um, uh, we again, need to uh, see if we even have the availability of varicella immunoglobulin. And if we don't, uh, other things to consider would be prophylaxis with acyclovir. Um, the, again, going back to knowing your, your local guidelines, the uh, guidelines, in, to some extent, when using IV acyclovir, don't recommend starting the acyclovir in the baby who's exposed immediately. And Oftentimes, the recommendation will be to start at seven days uh, after the exposure. So again, uh, important to go back to your local guidance to see uh, not only which medication or which prophylaxis measure is indicated, but also when to start it. Is there a spectrum of congenital neonatal disease? And what happens if a mom develops chickenpox earlier on in the pregnancy? Yeah, so at this point, we know we've really only concentrated on neonatal varicella, so acquired perinatally, but there is a very rare form that we don't see 
very often at all anymore uh, in a real true congenital varicella infection. The risk of true congenital intrauterine acquisition uh, of varicella, the highest risk is really in the first part of the first half of, of pregnancy. The, like I mentioned, though, the rates of congenital varicella syndrome have really decreased over time, and that's really attributable to our widespread vaccination um, uh, programs. The classic congenital varicella syndrome, again, can really involve any organ, uh, but classically involves the skin where you get cicatricial scarring, uh, can involve the limbs where you get limb abnormalities, limb um, hypoplasia, can also involve the eyes, and you can get both posterior and anterior eye disease. So you can get cataracts, you can get a, a chorioretinitis. A and again, you can get central nervous system disease, including autonomic nerve uh, um, system involvement as well. So you can see things like um, uh, polymicrogyria, uh, at its very worst, schizencephaly. But classically, uh, what you will see is those scarring skin lesions. And typically, they're in a dermatomal distribution uh, throughout the, the body. And over and above that, uh, the central nervous system involvement can also include microcephaly uh, and developmental delay, which is definitely something that you'll want to follow long term. The, the most kind of acute thing uh, that you will want the patient to be monitored for is that, that autonomic nervous system dysfunction. So that can lead uh, to changes in, in blood pressure, but also can lead to less acute things like neurogenic bladder, hydronephrosis, dilatation of the esophagus, or quite significant gastrointestinal reflux. So I guess the, the question is, we don't see it very often, so how are we going to diagnose it? So first, we have to recognize it. So looking for this, the, the syndrome and the symptoms associated with it. And then we can test microbiologically, but unfortunately, our, our microbiologic testing is not quite good for congenital varicella syndrome because really when we sample all of the, the sites involved, so the eyes and the skin, even the amniotic fluid, um, we very rarely actually find the varicella by PCR, although you can, and, and if you do, that will confirm your diagnosis. But it's, it's typically a, a syndromic diagnosis and, and a good history of the mom having varicella in the first half of pregnancy. The other thing that you may want to look back at is, is the prenatal ultrasounds, because sometimes you can identify those severe manifestations of intrauterine uh, chickenpox infection uh, all the way back in the ultrasounds. These findings, again, you can see on the ultrasound, the limb shortening uh, or uh, hepatic uh, echogenic focuses. The baby might be IUGR, might be microcephalic, even on your, um, on your ultrasounds. Uh, and you might already see cerebral abnormalities like hydrocephalus uh, uh, as well. Uh, and last but not least, you can see fetal hydrops or, or in worst case scenarios, fetal demise. The other thing that uh, we do need to consider, uh, separate from uh, congenital varicella syndrome, is that women in general in pregnancy, typically in the latter half of pregnancy, are quite prone to severe chickenpox infection as well. So we will often use uh, uh, varicella immunoglobulin in the first half of uh, pregnancy to prevent congenital varicella syndrome, but in the second half of pregnancy, really to prevent those severe complications of, of varicella in the mum itself. So I hope at this point, we have prevented a outbreak in the NICU. <laughs> <laughs> I 
always sort of leave it open at the end to make sure there's not any other uh, points you guys want to emphasize or or um, topics that you want to make sure we mention before we finish up. Yeah, I guess the only other thing I would probably mention, because it, it has, in my experience, come up once or twice. Um, it, and again, going back to the fact that VZIG is a limited resource, it is a blood product, we do want to use it when it's indicated. Um, and, and I have had situations for various reasons where babies were on immunoglobulin. Uh, and in those sort of situations, um, varicella uh, VZIG is not indicated as long as the baby has had their last immunoglobulin um, infusion within three weeks. Um, and in fact, if you don't have VZIG, one of the other options that you can use is just standard um, uh, IVIG. Uh, and so that's something to consider as well. You know, opening up the, the options uh, that you have, uh, not only to just VZIG, but, but other options, uh, including a cyclovir and uh, IVIG as well. Lastly, I guess we touched it on, on it a bit, uh, but I just wanted to reinforce this point because I think it's probably something that will get called about more often than actually a pri- like a primary varicella is zoster. So if, if uh, the, the, the baby is exposed to somebody with zoster, again, provided that the, the person with zoster is a normal host, not on chemotherapy, not on immunocompromising medication, not on a biologic, they, the, the, the precautions are really just contact as opposed to what we traditionally think of with varicella as a, a very highly contagious aerosolized um, uh, uh, virus. Uh, and in those situations, again, preserving the VZIG for people who really need it, provided that the person isn't rubbing their um, zoster lesion in the baby's vicinity, which I would hope that wouldn't be the case, <laughs> then that in itself wouldn't be an uh, indication for treatment um, of the baby. With that said, however, if the person that has zoster is immunocompromised or has multidermatomal zoster, then we do worry about the uh, varicella being transmitted via aerosols. And then we would use those same criteria that we talked about to risk stratify the babies and who needs treatment and who, who doesn't. Thank you to Gunjan and Justin for closing out this series. For more info, you can always check out our website, febrilepodcast.com, where you'll find the consult notes, which are written compliments to the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.